I'm Sarah Williamson, and this is Going Long with FCLT Global. On this show, you'll learn what it means to be long-term from the top minds in global business and investing. Leaders from companies and investment organizations join us to discuss how they are leading their teams for the long run on issues including capital allocation, risk management, climate change, and sustainability. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org. Today, our guest is Heather McGregor. Professor Heather McGregor is the Executive Dean of the Edinburgh Business School, which is the School of Business of Harriet Watt University. And previously, she was an entrepreneur and investment banker. So Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Sarah, it's lovely to be here with you today. And let's start with, I know that in addition to your academic and business career, you wrote for many years uh, under the pseudonym of Mrs. Moneypenny in the Financial Times. So you're an astute observer of markets. Maybe we'll, we'll start there. How are you seeing these uh, markets that, we're, um, that are reacting to COVID, but um, doing it in, in interesting ways? Can you give us your perspective? Yes, I started writing the Mrs. Moneypenny column in 1999, can you believe it, Um, when markets look very different to how they are now. But I was living and working at the time in Tokyo, and I used to start the column every week with where the Nikkei was. Um, And so I I was really following markets really closely for years. And at the time, I was working in, in an investment bank. So you never get away from that. You know, when you, whatever you do in life, if you have been someone who's always followed the markets, I think you always will do. And I really have been struck uh, by what has happened in COVID. And I'm particularly struck by this because, you know, I sit on the board, as you know, of a number of public companies and indeed um, a private equity backed company. Um, and um, and I'm shortly going to join the company at some uh, join the board, I expect of an investment trust. So it's it's really a, um, a, you know, quite a broad different viewpoint, if you like, of markets. But one of the things that all these companies have in common is they've all accessed the debt capital markets. And I have been very, very noticing if you like of how buoyant those markets have been so where is this wall of money coming from that is that is fueling the debt capital markets now there's no doubt of course that governments need to spend to get through this pandemic um and also we know that there's a lot of money looking for a home because the people who have that money uh, you know can't spend it on traveling or whatever they would normally spend it on uh, so, so you know eating out this kind of thing i mean i think the whole pandemic has developed a new whole generation of accidental savers. Um, so, you know, there's a, there is a liquidity, there's no shortage of liquidity out, out there. And then, but it really did strike me also last year that there was next to no equity raising. And what 21 has seen um, is two really big bouts of equity raising. I mean, the, the first, the first year is around the Chinese issuance and Asian issuance generally. We've seen a lot of, of issuance from Asia, not just the, the famous uh, delayed Alibaba uh, equity issue, but plenty of other issues as well. Um, and then we've also seen the SPAC movement, which is particularly prevalent in the US at the moment, but I'm absolutely sure is coming to Europe. Um, and then when you look back at some of the analysis of last year, I mean, I'm a great believer in... Um, you have to study history, otherwise it repeats itself. And, and last year was an extraordinary year for two reasons. Number number one, 
the, the number of types of startup companies. So when you do an analysis of startup companies in the UK, um, the number one type of company that started up last year in the UK was disinfectant companies. That's not a surprise, is it? There's a whole COVID economy out there. Um, but the other thing is um, ESG funds. And I think last year, when we look back in history now, last year will be seen as the year where ESG funds finally went mainstream. And if you think about those ESG funds going mainstream, obviously Europe has been ahead in a lot of ways than the US, but it seems to be pretty much a global phenomenon. Do you think that's a you know, COVID-induced response to what people are seeing right now and we'll, we'll go back? Or do you think this is a permanent shift towards- I think this is a permanent shift. I think, I think this is partly you know, a COVID-induced response, which is I think the size of the amount of money entering ESG is a permanent response. But there's also a whole generational shift. You know, I'm, I'm going to be 60 next year and the, the generation that I grew up in, you know, born in the 60s, we were the last people really to have, for instance, defined benefit pension funds. And, uh, you know, you didn't really, you know, your, your pension got invested for you more or less. You didn't usually, unless you were super keen, um, actually, you know, go in and change your preferences about your asset allocations. Uh, you know, there was usually a, uh, a, a, um, there was usually some kind of algorithm actually that the older you got the more that they sold sold down equity and and put you into fixed income uh, but but i think the generation behind me and behind especially the generation behind that so that the the people who are you know probably 25 years younger than me and who who are now you know 35 ish they are being very proactive about where they want their money i think that's a the, the gen these generations are very purpose-led and uh, yeah, I think that's great. But what it does mean is that they are much more vocal about where they want their long-term savings to be invested. That won't yeah. go away after COVID. Right, no, that won't go away. And I think this accidental saver point you made is really interesting as well, because of course, what we've seen up to COVID is essentially declining saving rates, at least in the most developed um, economies. Uh, and as you pointed out, uh, a dissipation of defined benefit and other sorts of pension plans. So do you think we're going to turn the corner on people realizing it's actually pretty useful to, uh, to save or, or are we going to go back to um, eating out and traveling as soon as we get the opportunity? Well, I don't know about you, Sarah, but as soon as I get the opportunity, I'm both eating out and traveling. Um, <laughs> that said, it, it Again, I think this has been a permanent hinge moment. So I think a lot of companies will look at their carbon footprint and their travel expenditure and start to say, look, how realistic is this? You know, I mean, I, I speak as somebody who works in a university where we are very heavily involved in, as you know, in net zero and in lots of technological based research into uh, decarbonization. And yet, despite this, all of these academics fly all around the world to meet each other and present papers to each other. And what I have seen happen over the last year is while they've been forced to do it online, they're starting to say, hmm, we research in this area. How sensible is it for us to keep flying and, and meeting each other when we are preaching net zero? So I think that there will be now a much bigger shift to not no, no traveling, but less traveling. And you mentioned you serve on a number of boards. Do you think that the, the boards that you are on are also 
shifting. It's not just the investors. The boards are thinking hard about the ESG issues this year in a way that they perhaps, you know, wouldn't have been a year ago. Yes. I mean, you know, whether it's for the right reasons is another matter. (laughs) But you know what? If you don't measure the things that you value, you will only end up valuing the things that you measure. And and so because, um, you know, ESG is now being measured much more strongly by the market because it's consumer led. You know, we saw last year this record amount of money going into ESG funds. Um, And as I said, you know, this is this is really a change in direction because it was material last year. I I think I would go as far as to say that, you know, if we go back 10 years, honestly, if you were insisting on putting your money in what was then called sustainable funds, um, I suspect you were someone who was also doing daily yoga and pursuing a vegan diet. Uh, the, but, but these days, you know, everybody walking down the street as I said, because of generational shifts, will now want to know where their money is being invested and why. And so what I'm seeing is that, for instance, companies planning an exit, so companies that maybe are not public now, are really thinking hard about this because they know that if they they won't get the multiple on exit that they would like if they don't appeal to this whole you know, enormous number of funds that are only going to invest in you if you have got sensible ESG objectives and governance. And, and you mentioned that at Harriet Watt, you're also doing a lot of work on decarbonization and thinking about how we actually put some of these technologies, get new technologies, actually put them to work. Because one of the things with ESG, of course, is that historically, sometimes it's been divesting of things that are bad in some way. Um, I think increasingly we're seeing it also investing in things that are good or investing in the technology of the future. So how do you see the work that you all are doing at Harriet Watt coming together with this trend to put money behind um, more, more green funds? Well, that's where I think at the moment there is a a bit of a disconnect between what needs funding and how it needs funding and the kind of money. So people do want to put their money into ESG, absolutely. But do you think they want to put their money into things where they might not see a return for five years and in fact, or 10? And in fact, they might not see a return at all. That, That still, I think, makes people feel uncomfortable. And even though you can explain to, you know, somebody, somebody who's 35, yeah, the, 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 in the UK, the government retirement age is 67. So if you're 35, you've got 32 years to invest for. Um, and I don't think, though, that people think in 32-year cycles. I think that's just still too, too long a time for them to contemplate. Um, and if you look at some of the projects we're working on at Harriet Watt, they are really things that are going to need a leap of faith. You know, we're developing aviation fuel from food waste, for instance, as an example. We we are looking at road transportation and trying to make it all electric and driverless, which, which means that the truck, in order to uh, recharge itself, the, ch- the truck, which in one day won't have a driver, you know, the, the non-existent, the algorithm or the AI that's driving it won't nip out of the cab. And this kind of the cold chain, you know, when, when you have um, LNG, the gas that is, that is shipped around the world, you know, when it, when it, it has to keep things really, really cold, when it, when it gets to where it's going, it discharges all that cold, usually into the ocean. And, and yet 
you know, there are countries where you need to get things cold, you know, very hot countries. So it would be much better if those ships actually transferred their cold, if you like, um, in, in, into places that could use it rather than just dispensing it into the ocean. So that all of these are the kinds of things we're studying at Harriet Watt. And we are making huge progress with this. We, you know, we've got the UK's net zero champion for industrial decarbonisation based at Harriet Watt. Um, but what we don't see is necessarily the lines of funding coming forward to invest in this. And this is despite the fact that, and, and this is a paper, of course, that's on your website, uh, it, it has been shown, uh, you know, over and over again, that the longer term R&D investment is where the better returns are. So you, you can show people papers on that, they're blue in the face, they still feel uncomfortable about investing for a 32-year period. Yeah, it just feels so long to most people. I mean, we're, you know, trying to get people to focus on the long term, and we're usually trying to get them off of uh, a quarter or a year or three years. So 32 years is, is a challenge. You know, historically in um, research, especially uh, research where you're not sure what's going to happen, there's been this uh, chain, if you will, from academic research to venture capital to you know, sort of pre-IPO to, to a company that goes public and so on. Where are you seeing this disconnect? Is it not funding it at the academic stage? Is it not enough venture? Is it not, not enough sort of um, pre-IPO, which may be a long time in some of these cases? Is it, is it not enough at the end? Where, where, where's the, where's the, the bottleneck here? So I, I, I think that is the, the bottleneck is, you know, the disconnect between um, the very early stage investments that that are still in the lab you know i mean at that point you're investing in r d so i would have expected and, and we do have that you know some of the work that's going on in our labs is being invested in by companies by companies with very you know huge foresight and so ultimately the beneficiaries will be the investors in those companies um but some of it, it in my view should be being invested in by investors who would then um, actually directly, you know, through some mediated fund, maybe, that would, would hold a mandate for the long term. It, it, you know, we, we live, as you know, the, the main campus of our university is in Scotland, although we're also in Dubai and Malaysia. And, and Scotland is a, is a home of many famous fund managers and fund management companies, many of whom, you know, have invested for the long term. And inevitably, this pays off. I, I also like to think of investing for the long term as being, you know, buy and hold, you know, invest your money and just don't do anything for a long time. Because I, I, nothing that I've ever read shows me that uh, that uh, portfolio churn is a very good idea. Uh, so, so actually, if you think about it as being minimizing portfolio churn, that is the same thing, you know, investing for a long time. So I would, I would like to see people having more opportunities to invest directly into R&D if, if they've got an element of, the, of their capital that they that they want to, you know, have, it, if you like, invested in the long term. I don't see that everyone's going to always put all of their money in the long term. Of course not. People are going to have different horizons and, you know, different times of return. But um, what I actually think is that, you know, if we can get people to have a, you know, a different um, approach to maybe some of their capital, then that is what I think will unlock. And then what, of course, you also need is trusted intermediaries in the middle. So you need you need fund, some fund managers to offer those funds too. 
Right. Who also have that long-term time frame and have the incentive based on that long-term time frame, rather than, for example, um, raising assets or uh, turning the portfolio. Because as, as you said, turning the portfolio is usually not very good for the investor. It's often good for somebody on the other side. Um, yes, churning the portfolio is almost never in the interests of anybody, actually, you know, other than somebody else who, you know, isn't the fund manager and isn't the investor. It's almost certainly somebody in the markets. I mean, interestingly, you know, if we have a lot of volatility in the markets, you know, inter-dealer brokers and people like this who are basically intermediaries, they're all the winners. People, people who make money out of risk movement are the people who are winners in volatility. Um, you know, personally, I'd like to think that I would buy things and just not move from those things unless I absolutely should. Well, you mentioned history a few minutes ago, and one of the really interesting parts of history at um, the at your school is um, Adam Smith. So, and his home. Can you um, tell us a little bit about the, the story of the Adam Smith house? Of course, and and, and I, I think it, it, we should also discuss how Adam Smith and focusing capital on the long term are intertwined as well, uh, because he, his reach is everywhere, um, despite the fact that he's been dead for you know well over two hundred years. Uh, Adam Smith, for anybody listening who isn't familiar, is the eighteenth-century economist um, and moral philosopher who was born in Fife, which is a, a county in Scotland, just very not far from Edinburgh, actually just over the water from Edinburgh. Um, and he lived for the last 12 years of his life in Edinburgh, where he was the head of taxation at the port. So he was the head of customs and excise, effectively. Uh, and during those 12 years, he lived in a house called Pamuel House. He didn't own it. He rented it. It had been built about 100 years before. Uh, and he made it absolutely his own. He revised the last uh, few editions of The Wealth of the Nations and his other major work, The Ethereal of Moral Sentiments there. And every weekend he would gather the greatest minds in Edinburgh at the time. And this was, of course, the time of the Enlightenment. So there were some astonishingly um, famous people and clever people who he knew, um, ranging from people in literature like Robert Burns. He, you know, he was a subscriber to Burns's first ever book that he published as a subscription book in order to fund himself. Um, and James Watt, who uh, Adam Smith was a huge supporter of the of the engineer Watt, and in fact again purchased from him um, one of his early copying machines. So he he was, you know, just fascinated by all these amazing minds around him, and he used to gather them together every Sunday to try and solve, if you like, intellectually at least, the biggest problem the world which in those days were international trade and trade barriers um, and also the increasing productivity that was coming with the early industrial revolution and tell us about how you got a hold of this house and um, how does how did uh, how did it how how you found the house uh, so I, I got my job in um, September 2016. Uh, I started on the 1st of September 2016. And when I was being interviewed for my role, and I came from being an entrepreneur straight into full-time um, academia, it, although I had a PhD and I'd been a visiting professor, this was a really new experience for, for me to become a dean and, and, and a professor uh, from, a, from the private sector. 
and of course when you when you go for a job interview I'm sure like you Sarah the first thing you do is go and look in the accounts to see you know what kind of thing you're inheriting and when I looked at the accounts of the business school I could see that it has a three and a half million pound work in progress I was like what's this and and they said oh that's Pam your house we own Adam Smith's house but we we sort of ran out of um ability to raise money or to whatever and so you know it's effectively a watertight shell and it was a it was I would say it was more than a watertight shell it was a watertight derelict shell on the second day that I I was employed my vice chancellor took me down to Pamir house and we needed hard hats to go in and we climbed through the rubble and he said I want you to bring bring this house back into the uses for which it was originally used, i.e. to bring the greatest minds together. It, you know, it should have convening power. And I want it put back to use for the university, for Scotland and for the world. And I thought, what a, what a great vision. And it's going to be my, you know, my absolute number one focus to get this sorted out. So my first hundred days at the business school, I ignored, I'm afraid, all the students and pretty well most of the staff and, and spent my time on at least getting approval to finish the rebuild um, and find the funds to do that. So that, that, that took me 100 days. And then my big breakthrough came when um, I invited Dominic Barton um, to come and see the house. And he had to put a hard hat on and walk through rubble as well. And we we looked at the house and I showed him where Adam Smith had lived and worked. Um, and I said, you know, I really want to put this to use to bring people's minds on funding for the long term, because Herit Watt is full of innovative, cutting edge research. You know, we, we are a technology based university in so many ways and you know we've got the national robotics institute for the uk and now as i as i said earlier we're we are the uk's um leading industrial net zero center uh, and yet people don't understand that all this technology is all very well but if you don't have the capital to fund it over the long term then it will never see the light of day it will never advance the wealth of nations to, to use an adam smith expression uh, and I knew that Dominic was passionate uh, about this. I knew he'd been a funding, a founding member of um, FCLT. And, uh, and then, of course, Sarah, he introduced me to you, which was, of course, the second best thing he ever did. And, uh, and then, you know, you kindly came to see the house together and we came up with the idea of an academic prize, which I'm now thrilled that we have finally launched so that we can get academics all over the world to put their minds on this. And that way we can do the very thing that Adam Smith himself did, which is bring some of the best minds to focus on some of the world's biggest problems. Well, you're very kind. I will never forget putting on the hard hat and going into that place. And it really, um, your vision was very strong, but the current state of the building was, uh, uh, it, it left a little to be desired at that point. So it's uh, it's amazing to see it now. and. It opened officially in the summer of 2019, um, and it's, uh, it is a, a wonderful convening place. Adam Smith um, would be proud. And now we've got this prize going. So um, do you want to update people on the prize and the committee that's been put together and the, the call for papers that has gone out? Because this has really turned from you know, an idea in, into a reality. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right, you know, the summer of 2019, we finally saw what extraordinary convening power we had uh, at Pamir House when we held a new Enlightenment co conference there. 
and you know many learned academics uh, from all over the world um, joined us, Sarah, there, as you will remember. And I do remember at one point sitting in the room it would have been Adam Smith's front row when he lived there and adding up the citations of the front row and realizing that we had 100,000 citations just along the front row of that room. I think Adam Smith would have been proud to have so many leading academic minds there from the, the finance and business world. Uh, and the, the the prize was was of course you know it was it was a, an idea and where we were very blessed was that uh, Bailey Gifford, who themselves of course are um, funders of the long term and members of FFCLT, um, have generously donated the the money to run the prize for at least the first five years. And we've put out a call for papers for people to apply for 75,000 US dollars of research funding. So what that should mean, if you, and, and we particularly, by the way, we want to encourage early career academics. We want people who want to be famous one day for working in the area of long term investment. That's we want to find that next generation and to encourage that next generation of academics, because the more that this is written about and, and the more that it's debated the more likely it is to become a reality and the more that people can prove that, that and, and you know with something that we already of course believe in uh, uh, that investing for the long term is where the returns are but we want to see more of that kind of work um, and we want people to make it their lifelong area of study if you like so we're trying to encourage early career academics um, we will give their institution $75,000. Hopefully that will give them some time off from teaching or uh, buy them some research assistance or whatever they want to do with it. And then they'll be invited to come to Pamir House itself in the summer of 2022 to present their work. So we're calling for proposals. This is actually a call for a research proposal rather than for a paper. And the winner will, will get the money to spend time on developing their paper which we will invite next summer. And, and if we get some really good applications, we'll probably, um, even if we don't fund the other work, we will still invite their authors back and also encourage them to apply for the prize in future years. Because as I said, this isn't just a one year event. We have assembled a, a really stellar and judging panel, and again, I, I have to give full credit to FCLT who worked so hard uh, on this with me. It's been a, an amazing partnership. I, I feel incredibly grateful to you. Um, we have, you know, learned academics um, like Nitin Noria and David Teese, um, John Kay. And, and then, you know, we have people in other parts of the world. We have the Adrian or the governor of the, the Bank of New Zealand. Um, we have uh, people who've run uh, or are still running enormous pension funds in Japan and in South Africa. You know, we really have a, a, a great international group of people. And on top of all of that, of course, um, Sir Angus Jason is, has agreed to be the patron of the prize, which I was absolutely thrilled about. And I hope you were too. Absolutely thrilled. And I, I, maybe I can ask you to tell the story of Sir Angus Deaton and how he is um, associated with Harriet Watt, because that is a very interesting story, too. Yeah, well, uh, Sir Angus is, is an absolutely wonderful person who I have been privileged enough to spend quite a lot of time uh, chatting to over Zoom over the last few months. And he told me that his father came to Harriet Watt. His father was somebody who was born um, in Yorkshire and left school at 12, pretty illiterate. And, and this was a mining village. You were expected to basically leave school and, and go down the mines. Um, 
And he was then conscripted into World War II when he was invalided out in 1941. He moved to Edinburgh with Angus's mother and they set about uh, having their family, which is where uh, Angus was born, and raising their family in Edinburgh. But his father went to work for an engineering company in George Street to some kind of office boy, an errand boy. But he went to night school at Harriet Watt and over the years, you know, built himself all the way up to getting a degree in civil engineering eventually which then led to him becoming a one day he, he you know in the time he retired he was the head of all water engineering for the south of scotland and angus of course then grew up in a different level of expectation and academic um achievement and of course angus was incredibly clever he ended up at a, at a school in, in um Edinburgh on a full scholarship and then of course you know went to Cambridge so I uh, but he is the first person to say that you know if his father hadn't gone to Harriet Watt and hadn't raised their whole family's um, ambitions and expectations it is entirely possible that Angus wouldn't have have gone on to Cambridge so um, I, I think that's very generous of him to acknowledge that role that Harriet Watt played in his family and of course to this day we are still the university in Scotland that looks after more people from what I would call widening access backgrounds than any other university. And the story I think again to make Adam Smith proud of having his legacy be tied to Harriet Watt which then of course um, educates Sir Angus's father, who then turns into be a is is brought up and turns into be a Nobel laureate in economics. I mean, there is just this wonderful chain there, and I think that you know one of the things that that you've said about the Panmer Prize is that hopefully there's a little bit of a chain, which is one person presents one year, and then the prize is awarded for the following, and then and then the following, and so on, and that we build this cadre of people who are really interested in this question of how do you fund long-term innovation? So to come back to what you were saying earlier on where these, where you have these sort of wild ideas that maybe we can decarbonize and, and really try to save our planet and do all sorts of fascinating technology, but it's not, doesn't quite have the, the, the funding that it needs for a 32 year project. Um, that, that's how this, uh, that's how this is all gonna come together, isn't it? Yeah, and, 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 you know, the circular economy is, is also all part of the net zero thing. And I like to think that this is the circular economy. It, it's interesting going back to the legacy of people, you know, as opposed to the legacy of buildings, for instance. I, um, when I was uh, fundraising for Pamu House, so after we got the money to actually do the physical infrastructure, then I was funding fundraising for the prize, for instance, and things like this. And even now, this year, Herrick was 200, and I'm leading the fundraising for our widening participation scholarships. Um, and one of, one of our governors said, you know, don't you want to put your energies into raising money for a building? rather than scholarships for people or academic prizes or whatever and, and I, I he said what about the legacy of, of these things and I said actually do you know what you know Sarangas for instance it's the most wonderful legacy um, and not just him but all the people he's ever taught all the people who have ever read his work you know uh, you know what building could we have put up in 19 in the 1940s when his father went to Harry what what building could we have put up then that would have had the same impact you know I just you know Pamir House is a building and it's a beautiful place to visit and I I would encourage the anyone listening to this to get in touch if you'd like to come and see it it's not open for public but we're always ready to share it with people um but ultimately 
I think our legacy of this prize is going to be in people and it's going to be in how many people can we get to put their minds to this and then I think the legacy will be you know at least 32 if not you know multiples of 32 years. Well I think that you know what this displays is obviously Adam Smith has has um, led to long-term funding of innovation, but also long-term funding of, of, of people, of human capital. And that is what um, obviously academics do and universities do. But I think that this, that our, our best hope for getting ourselves out of this um, climate issue and all sorts of other issues that we have today is, is going to be this next generation who hopefully will um, both have the, the mindset and the um, ability to figure out um, some solutions here. And therefore we need to have the funding for, for them. Um, so last question I'll ask you, which is as you look forward um, and you know we get this prize off the ground, you've done all sorts of things um, there at Harriet Watt. What what you know what what's next? What do you see? What's your what's your next uh, um, mountain to climb after you've done all of this amazing work in a in a relatively short time of of being there? Well, yes, I mean, I also, as well as Pamela House, you know, we've had a completely new uh, curriculum for the MBA and, and, and a new technology platform to offer it on. Um, I, again, I'm privileged enough to run the, the, the most international um, MBA program in the world. Um, we to give you an example, I mean, I personally went to the London Business School, which graduates, you know, a few hundred um, uh, MBAs every year from all over the world. Uh, um, but at Heriot, what we graduate 1500 MBAs every year from all, all, literally all over the world. A third of my students are in um, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I, I have 100 students, for instance, uh, right now in Myanmar, which, which is very challenging because they keep cutting off the internet there and uh, after the coup. So I, I, I have students all over the world and, and to be able to um, develop a whole new curriculum for for them has been, as I said, a huge privilege, and again, an investment in in human capital. You know, the the um, the chief medical officer in England, uh, who is right now someone really in the headlights, did his MBA with us. Um, the Prime Minister of Somalia did his MBA with us. So I'm I'm and and, yeah, and that by the way that was as a refugee. And right now we are um, we I. I raise the money to fund MBAs for refugees in um, camps in Lebanon and things like this. So th that that is all ongoing at the same time as Pamir House. Um, from a personal point of view, though, you know, I'm, go I'm going to be 60 next year, as I said, um, and, and I've been here five years this year, so who knows what's next. I do know, though, that um, I want to stay working in long-term finance for a long time. I am... I, um, uh, currently completing all my examinations to become a qualified chartered accountant which is uh, something I never thought I would be doing at this stage in my life, but I'm three exams in and it's all looking good so far. Um, and the next examination is on risk, Sarah. So that, um, you know, that will be very helpful. Um, uh, and, and, and of course, I, I do have, as I said, several board directorships. Um, and, and then the final thing I do is for the, for the UK government is that I sit on the committee that awards honours. So, you know, the next time that we create a SIR out of an economics and Nobel laureate, it will be me who has helped to do that because I get to be, I'm one of the six people that gets to choose 
who in the world of business and economics is honoured by the Queen twice a year, which is again a very great privilege. So not short of things to do, Sarah. I'm sure I should stay very busy. No shortage of things to do at all and um, a, a long list of contributions both to uh, the university, the financial markets, to your country um, and, and really also to FCLT. So we are so grateful for your partnership, um, for your leadership in terms of just your dynamism and your enthusiasm and setting up this prize and figuring out how to make this all happen. And just, you know, the impact that Harriet Watt is having on the world. I think that you sort of figured out distance education before anybody else did, at least in the financial business. And so um, uh, the, the impact is enormous. So just thank you so much for, for your time today and for your um, focus on investing in the long run. It's been a great pleasure, Sarah, and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy any time to talk to people about going long. You know, it is a, a it is a yeah, an absolutely critical decision that everybody needs to take. And we look forward to the prize supporting the debate. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Going Long with FCLT Global. Be sure to hit subscribe to get new episodes every other Monday. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org.